You know, the one thing that excites me is that this is really unexplored territory. You know, this is not something that's been done, you know, multiple times with different interpretations. This is something that while it's our interpretation of it, there's not a whole back catalog of uh, products out there. So we get to almost be the uh, the trendsetters, I guess, or the groundbreakers in this in this regard, that we're the ones who are going to put this out there and and hopefully get people interested. If you say the real life ends up your days and you don't have time to play well midlife is the best time to start a new role playing fame and you need a rescue Chase coming My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, rescuers. I hope that you're well. Today, I'm back at the mic interviewing a writer from the illustrious ranks of the Frog God team. This is the first time that Roleplay Rescue has been invited by an RPG company to interview and talk about a new product, which, despite obviously being part of an awareness campaign for the Kickstarter Now Live, despite that, this was a great honour for me. I realise as well that we role players don't perhaps pay as much attention to the writers of modules and worlds, preferring to honour the illustrious game designers and artists much more, but I learned a great deal from my guest, Tom Knaus of Frog God Games. Huge thanks to Tom for coming on the show. Thanks also to John Barnhouse, who orchestrated this interview and was gracious enough to offer Roleplay Rescue this seminal moment. The interview is rich with Tom's backstory, talk of his new setting, of course, and also his secret desire to write for a totally different game. Andy Goodman will approve. Let's dive in. This is Season 7, Episode 7, an interview with Tom Knaus. Tom Knaus has been a game designer for 20 years, working with such companies as Atlas Games, Bastion Press, Cobalt Press, Legendary Games, Mongoose Publishing, and most recently, Frog God Games. He wrote the Perilous Vistas line of products for Frog God Games, in addition to contributing to many other titles, such as Rappanathak, The World of the Lost Lands campaign setting, and Razor Coast. Welcome to Roleplay Rescue, Tom, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Right, I'd just like to take a trip back to the beginning, if I may. How did you first get started with games and gaming? Um, it started when we were uh, young. My brother and I had um, a neighbor who had uh, friends who lived in New York City. I live in New Jersey. And um, mm-hmm. they came over one day and they had this brand new game called Dungeons and Dragons. And it was the old uh, blue book with, um, we didn't have polyhedral dice. So we used, uh, we scrounged up Monopoly dice and used six-sided dice. Awesome. And we sat in a basement and we're just entranced and played for hours on end. And we're like, this is so cool. I want to keep doing this and kind of spiraled and mushroomed from there. So what sort of uh, time frame was that when you were starting? Just out of curiosity. Um, I would say I was probably, I, I really can't get the year correct because I never can remember. I think it was <laughs> either 79 or 80. So I was like 
you know, tween or teenage, young teenager at the time. Yeah, yeah. I have a similar kind of time frame, so well relate to that. <laughs> um, and have you carried on sort of gaming all the way through? Yeah, I've, I've gamed pretty much continuously from then on, so and still do today. So it's been 40, uh, probably 40 years of yeah. continuous gaming. Brilliant. How did you get involved with writing for role-playing games? Uh, you know, I was always um, a GM, and I wrote my own stuff, and I would go to cons or, you know, play with people, and they said, oh, I really liked it. It was really cool. Your, the adventure was really neat. I'd like to play in your group, blah, blah, blah. So uh, when the OGL came out in 2000 for D&D uh, 3.0, I saw a lot of open calls, and I'm kind of like, well, you know, maybe this is a chance to get in. So I submitted stuff, and oh, my God, they accepted it. And I submitted more stuff and someone said, oh my God, this is good. Do you have more? I'm like, yeah, I got plenty more. So, <laughs> and it kind of just went from there. So, you know, you built one credit and then you get another credit and you get more credits. And, mm. you know, as you build up your reputation, more people actually start coming looking for you to do stuff for them. So. Absolutely. So what was your first title? Uh, my first title was my first, well, all right, let me re backtrack a little. My first thing that was actually published, I think, was a few bits and pieces of armor for uh, Arms and Armor from Bastion Press. Um, right. I think the first thing that I published like as myself was a, mm. an adventure called um, uh, Love Forlorn from a company I'm 99.9% sure isn't with us anymore called uh, Rock Games. So, right. Back when everybody started an RPG company when the OGL first came out. Oh, absolutely. It was a busy, busy time, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Lots of creativity. I mean, that was the thing about it, wasn't it? Lots of creativity, lots of kind of energy in the hobby again. As the edition sort of re-energized everything. That was, was that a system that you enjoyed writing for? Um, I did. Uh, you know, like any system, as the more and more you delve into it deeper and the more and more that you um, look at it, the more things you find that like, eh, you know, I don't know if that works so well and you want to try and fix it. Um, but I think 3.0 was the first edition that I really looked at and said, you know, this really, um, you know, to me makes a lot of sense. It meshes well together. You know, mm. I always felt like the earlier editions left, um, you know, didn't seem to have that um, mm -hmm. cohesiveness. They seemed kind of disjointed that something seemed like way more powerful than others. And some things seem to have been written in a vacuum without mm. taking into account the rest of the rules and things just, you know, got completely wacky with them. So I, I did, I do like writing for three. Oh, I'd like writing for three, five. Um, I like writing for Pathfinder and now I like writing for five, eight. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was kind of thinking about how I suppose in a lot of ways, third edition was the first time anyone sat down and like rewrote it from scratch. You know, I mean, I, I know they've done it to some extent with second edition, mm -hmm. um, but I feel like I guess I got the impression uh, that the, yeah, the, the back, you know, the, the ropes were off, weren't they? They were allowed to do whatever, kind of re reinvigorate it. So perhaps that lended, you know, lent itself to some cohesiveness. So what's your go-to system these days? Um, right now I predominantly play 5E, mm -hmm. um, but if you catch me at a con, the system I want to play is Call of Cthulhu. Okay. I like playing Call of Cthulhu and I like running Call of Cthulhu. So, so did you uh, discover that back at its origins in 82? I did. I did. Mm. But we, we never found anybody who, would, who was willing to run it. And yeah. you know, <laughs> we were always like kind of deep dived into um, Dungeons and Dragons at the time that we yeah. never really, you know, got in. We were always aware of it because we had that boot 
don't want to call it a bootleg book, but we had the old yeah. demigods where TSR used the Cthulhu mythos, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they kind of mysteriously vanished from the shelves afterwards. So you're kind of like, what's what's Cthulhu? What is this thing? And, and you know, I looked into you looked into it more, and you're like, oh, this is cool. There's a game you could play, but you know, we never really got a chance in that uh, beginning time to uh, play that game. But mm-hmm. I enjoy it. It's it's a fun game. So what is it? Is it about the mystery itself or is it the horror, a bit of both? What, what do you particularly enjoy about Cthulhu? I think it's a bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I like the investigative angle. Um, you know, I used to be a real world investigator. So for me, you know, it feels kind of interesting to do that and mm-hmm. to, you know, and sometimes it's kind of funny. I, I look at it and I kind of laugh because it's like, yeah, nobody would really do that. <laughs> you know, nobody mm-hmm. would investigate something that way. Um, so I think it's the horror too, you know, it's, it's that just otherworldly sense of, you know, in Dungeons and Dragons um, or in role-playing and fantasy games, people tend to become kind of jaded and they're just, mm. yeah, oh, it's another dragon. Okay, well, I'll kill that, you know, in Cthulhu, mm. it could be anything. Um, and especially when you play in a, in a modern setting or even in the, you know, 1920s, you know, you can use um, technology, you can use mm. um, aliens, you can use um, mythology and folklore Whereas in a done, in a fantasy role playing setting, introducing like technology would be kind of broken or would seem, you know, like a bad fit. Whereas in Cthulhu, mm. it can make perfect sense. No, so yeah, and, and I'm, am I right in saying that you sort of believe very strongly with uh, sort of D and D games that setting and and world, you know, making that really interesting through setting is is key. Yeah, I mean, the setting is the place where you are, and, and you, you need to really immerse yourself in it to really get mm. the full uh, appreciation for it. So, you know, I'm a big fan of um, a setting that, you know, has has an organic feel to it, that it feels mm. like it grew naturally, that it developed naturally, and society's progressions make sense, as opposed to, it's just, oh, we need this kind of um, town here, let's just throw in uh you know romantic vampire town here and we'll throw in um oh cool cool werewolf town over here um just because we you know feel like that's what people want and to me that kind of feels very um just feels contrived it doesn't feel real and i like a setting that feels real that i can understand its history um and immerse myself in it as well so is um i mean as a gamer yourself do you prefer to play or gm um, I prefer to play in home games. Yeah, I prefer to GM at conventions. And the reason is at conventions, um, I don't know the players and they're going to do things I don't expect. Yeah. And they don't know me and they don't know what I'm going to do. Whereas opposed when you're in a home game, I know the players, I know what they're going to do, or I have a very good idea what they're going to do. And they know what I'll probably do too. Yeah. So... And, and, you know, and the time constraints, too, are very difficult because when you're an RPG designer, um, you know, this doesn't pay, you know, big bucks. So you have to have a second job. You have to have a quote unquote real job. This is your second job. So you just don't have the time constraints to throw together, you know, something every week or every two weeks Mm -hmm. um, that you think really lives up to what you would want to do. So, you know, it just makes playing much more natural in that setting. Mm -hmm. But in a convention... GMing is my preferred uh, route because I can test things on people who I don't know what they're going to do and they'll surprise mm. me and do things and say, you know what, that's a pretty clever idea. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Let me incorporate that into the product I'm doing. Mm. 
So what do you personally feel like role-playing, what makes role-playing worthwhile to you in, in these games? Um, you know, personally, it's, it's, the, it's the social aspect of it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not the person who's, you know, I, I like to play a character and I like to portray it, but I'm not going to live and die with my character. My character dies and it's my fault. That's fine. You know, it's, yeah. we'll go on, but um, it's, you know, it's just being around either a table or in a virtual setting with other people and being able to converse and joke and laugh and have fun and have a good time. And that, that's really it. You know, I'm just as happy playing a role-playing game as I am playing a silly uh, party game with other people just, just to have yeah. fun. That's good stuff. I mean, that's exactly, I mean, the prime reason, isn't it, really, you know, to get together with people. I've always found it to be a good excuse to get people away from their uh, families for a few hours, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the job, <laughs> more importantly. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, Rob Play Rescue is a podcast. We're really about sort of encouraging people to come back to the hobby. You know, a lot of people drift away, um, you know, for a good period of time often um, with family and all those kind of commitments. Um, if someone come, is coming back, or, I mean, do you have any particular thoughts or advice that you would give them? Uh, any particular sort of tips for getting yourself back in there? Yeah, don't bog down on the details. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't let the rules um, intimidate you or govern what you do. Um, mm. You know, I like to tell players, you know, someone asked me, what do you do with new players? I said, mm. I, I don't give them rules. I spoon feed them to them. Mm. So when they want to do something, I explain to them, here are your options. You can do this. If you do this, you'll have to do a role or a check to do this. If you want to mm. do this, you can do a role or check to do that. But don't sit and just look at the rule book and go, oh, my God, this is 180 pages. I'm going to have to read it. I'm going to have to know it. I'm like, no, no, just do what you want to do. And Mm. I'll tell you what your options are. And then you make the decision based on that. So, and I think that's the one thing that people get lost and they really, you know, try to wrap their heads around the rule set and how do I, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, just, just do it. And that's the fun thing about new players is they just do it. They don't sit there and go, um, hmm, I have a 64% chance if I do it this way. <laughs> and the new players, it's like, you know, they're like the hero in the action movie. I, I run in guns blazing and yeah. there's 30 guys around me. And okay, whatever happens, happens. So that's the part I really like about um, about new players. And also somebody who wants to come back into the game, just do it. Just yeah. let the story guide you and take it wherever it goes and don't bog down on the rules. Yeah, just get stuck in basically. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah don't get stuck in them don't get stuck in the rules don't let the rules govern your govern your game mm. brilliant um i was just kind of curious i mean we obviously talked a little about about your writing and you've written many adventures as far as i can tell and, and several setting books and bits and pieces over the years um what draws you to keep writing for role-playing games then you know i always like to try something new um, I, I'm the person who wants to do that adventure that no one else will do or do that kind of like odd, I don't want to say odd, but go places where other people haven't gone. And, you know, if, if you asked me to do something that was very um, just kind of jaded or traditionally done or has been done many times, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not as interested as when I get a chance to um, do something completely new. So mm. I think it's just the newness, the freshness. I'm not just yeah. rehashing the same old ideas over and over again. I'm doing something different and I'm expanding on something that already exists. And my cat has decided to 
make a visit. So he <laughs> might be appearing on the podcast. Um, we'll see. When he hears voices and he hears me talking, he just wants to be heard. So. No, absolutely. That's great. And um, Fab answer to the question too. So thank you. Now I hear you're writing a Mesoamerican theme book for an upcoming Frogger Games Kickstarter. So what can you tell us about that? Okay, so we are, are doing a book called um, Tual, and it's actually spelled T-E-H-U-A-T-L. Um, that's the pronunciation in Tual, which was the language that was mm-hmm. spoken in Mesoamerica um, in the uh, 16th century. Now, again, the pronunciation is based upon what we understand. We don't mm-hmm. know if this is 100% correct, mm-hmm. but it will consist of two books. The first book is what we call Tual. It is the main source book. So that is mm-hmm. like your guide, your gazetteer to this island. Um, if I have to equate the island, I, I'm talking to someone from the UK, so I'm used to saying it's about the size of Kansas or Oregon and people in the US go, oh, okay, I understand. Um, so I'm going to adjust this a little bit and say mm. it's about the size of Germany. Right, fantastic. For, for folks in the UK who can relate to that, hopefully. And um, so that first book will be your guidebook. It'll be the Cazeteer. It'll tell you all about the island. It'll tell you about locations. Uh, it'll tell you about the people, the religions, um, their traditions. Uh, <clears throat> a broad overview, its history. Um, it also have some appendices that will provide a pronunciation guide for Nawal mm-hmm. if you want to fully immerse yourself into it. And we'll also have a second book. And the second book is Adventures in Nawal. And at the present time, it will have three adventures in it. Um, one written by me, one written by um, Rob Manning, who's done work for some, several other companies, including, including Frog God Games and one written by Tim Hitchcock. So if you're familiar with Paizo and Pathfinder, um, he did a lot of the Paizo um, uh, adventure paths, including Kingmaker, which a lot of people have a very uh, fondness for. We also have a couple add-on adventures, and we're also going to do a system-specific guidebook for 5e, Pathfinder, and Swords and Wizardry. So um, the main book is system-neutral, but the added on guidebook will add spells, magic items, equipment, um, and for 5e and Pathfinder, it will add class options. So if you want to play um, a particular type of warrior in this environment, it will give you all the rules to do it, and it'll give you the, um, you know, the background for it, the, you know, how yeah. the, what the character's about, what what his beliefs are, uh, and that sort of thing. So, mm. you know, we're really excited about it. Sounds like one of those classic uh, Kickstarters as well. You know, you'll have that choice of the the setting, or and you know, yeah, setting books and all that stuff, and then the choice of the, your system to go with that, which is uh, mm-hmm. one of the wondrous things about um, Frogog stuff, really. So um, you said that you know Five E was your go to on that. Um, does it bring anything uh, particularly different to the fifth edition experience uh, to your mind? Um, I think so. We, we did a good mm. job of, or I think we did a good job mm. of um, incorporating the flavor of Mesoamerica into the 5e rule set that, you know, obviously we didn't change the 5e rule set, but, yep. you know, we added some very um, setting specific options for players and characters in this, mm. in this environment. And I think 5e was really good for that because it was very, um, you know, it was open to adjustments, open to you know, adding things that we thought were interesting and also, you know, made sense for the character. So mm-hmm. like, for instance, there's one that's a, a courier mm-hmm. um, and couriers are very important in Mesoamerica because there was no horses. Um, so the only way to really transport messages was either by canoe or you ran. So mm-hmm. in this case, you <laughs> ran and the character has some, you know, really intriguing abilities that um, build upon that idea of, 
you're this courier and you're often alone. So you get certain abilities when you're alone because that's what you're accustomed to doing. So yeah. I think we, you know, use the 5e rule set and we're going to use the Pathfinder rule set as well to give you an added dimension to characters um, from Tual who want to immerse themselves in the full yeah. uh, flavor of this campaign setting. What is it you yourself found particularly interesting about Mesoamerica? Uh, diving into this project it must have been quite a, a bunch of research there and all the rest of it. So was there anything in particular that you really felt was, you know, interesting, exciting? You know, the, the more you look at this culture, the more incredible it is. Mm. And the more, you know, you realize how underappreciated it was. Mm. Um, you know, while it had a spectacularly quick downfall, mm. um, it had built up over several centuries. And, you know, it was very advanced, despite mm. the fact that, you know, sometimes people who say, well, they didn't have steel, they didn't have gunpowder, mm. they didn't have the wheel, which is wrong. They didn't know what the wheel was. It just wasn't practical in their environment. Yeah. Um, they had compulsory education. They had excellent sanitation systems. Um, mm. They built the city in a swamp that mm. was, you know, rivaled or exceeded anything in Europe at the time. So... Mm. You know, it was really just a very um, advanced uh, culture that unfortunately, you know, due to a bunch of circumstances that all came together at the wrong time, uh, fell rather quickly and kind of disappeared. So, you know, it required a lot of research. Unfortunately, I don't have the luxury of contacting somebody from 16th century Mesoamerica and asking them what it was like. Um, and even today, you know, while their descendants are still alive, you know, their connection to 500 years ago is extremely limited. You know, it wouldn't be, you know, it's just, you know, nobody lives as they did then right now, yeah. you know, so. I guess that's the advantage of being able to uh, do that blend with fantasy as well, isn't it? I guess you can fill in the gaps, um, you know, with, with other, other ideas. Yeah, and that's exactly what we did. Um, again, you know, it was, it's a fantasy setting and it's fictional. So this is not, mm role-playing in 16th century Mexico. Yeah. Um, it's role-playing in an island that's inspired by mm. um, this time period, but it also allowed us to make some changes and advancements that we thought made sense. Um, one of the first, getting back, circling back to what we were just talking about, one of the first conversations Tim Hitchcock and I had was about steel. What do we do with it? You know, it didn't exist at the time. And, you know, our, we both came to the conclusion, you know what? Other peoples would have had it. They can introduce it. But unlike your traditional setting it's 90 degrees it's got 60 percent humidity and iron and steel rust yeah. so you want to go for it okay go for it you know but these are the drawbacks to it and then in other respects we also you know made some advancements that we thought would have made a lot of sense um mm. the uh, mesoamericans have rubber it's not the rubber we know exactly mm. like it's not you know a rubber ball sort of um, but we thought they'd make the logical progression and uh, develop vulcanized rubber, which right. is great for us in the modern era. Um, but it also has some advantages then without being, you know, completely broken. But we didn't want to add gunpowder. Um, but we felt it also necessary to add warships because this is an island. Mm. And a canoe is not exactly ocean worthy. You're not going to go too far in a canoe. So we felt that, well, it would only make sense that if they're going to be trading with other um, parts of this world that they would need the ships to be able to do so. So, mm. you know, we added that component as well into the game. While also, though, keeping true to the source material and not adding horses um, and not adding beasts of burden for the most part. Mm. Uh, 
you know, to keep it because that progression didn't seem natural. That just seemed contrived. We're throwing it in there because, you know, they came later, mm. um, but they weren't really, you know, necessary to make the setting work. And what sort of inspiration do you take from the culture? Um, you know, you've obviously talked a lot about the technology there. Uh, what kind of uh, sort of start you know, kickoff points did you, did you grab? Uh, you know, it's in this world, it's kind of two worlds. It was a previous world and a current world. And the previous right. world um, had these influences. Mm. And so there are ruins, there are things to explore, and then there are new innovations on those things. And I mm. think the new innovations is what we really did. Building a, a society that is modeled on the Mesoamerican mm. society, but also actually incorporates some, I don't want to say more modern, but more... Um, more uh, I'm trying to think of the word a, a natural progression to um, reforming things mm. um, you know there are some people you know again in this setting we didn't want to make the one thing most people will say when you talk Aztec is they're going to say oh aren't those the people who did this um, so we didn't want to make that aspect um, sacrifice be a center mm. focus point of this it's in the background it exists some of the gods mm demand it some of them don't which we changed it and one of the key points of this is some of the people said enough of this we're not doing this anymore we're not you know you know giving people to the gods and it makes a big uh fundamental sea change in the way this island developed um between two factions one that still believes in that and one that didn't and uh and the reasons why it makes sense in the book at least we think they do and so i think that's the one thing we wanted to do was take that foundation and take it a little bit to the next level without breaking it or making it seem um, too modern you don't want it to seem like you know 20th century mindsets in a fantasy setting but we also wanted it to advance it a little bit down the track of development absolutely that sounds like a, a fine balance to walk but um, i'm sure it'll be uh, an interesting intriguing read mm -hmm. what's the mesoamerican thing do for the humble dungeon adventure well, it gives you some different components. Um, mm -hmm. We're not going to see your traditional, I don't want to call it a dungeon crawl, but I'll call it a dungeon crawl for lack of a better word. <laughs> uh, you know, um, there are still areas to be explored. Mm. But in, I think in this one, we tried to put the wilderness in the forefront mm. of this, that there are wilderness areas that are really mm. cool and interesting that you don't have to delve into that dank underground subterranean um, cavern filled with traps and mm. monsters and all that sort of thing that you can do a lot of that above ground in mm. you know, a mysterious a dark swamp teeming with pests and insects and you know strange peoples who almost vanished into the swamps and became part of its ecology. Mm. So that's really one of the things we really wanted to focus on in this book was to not necessarily take the adventurers out of the dungeon, but show them that there's more to adventuring than just the dungeon. Mm. I just kind of, in my mind, uh, I mean, you know, you're going to have to forgive me. My, my knowledge of Mesoamerican history is mm, limited, shall we say. Um, but, you know, there are images that come to mind when you start thinking about Aztec or Inca, you know, and you start thinking about gold and those big temples and, you know, the, the big structures, I guess. And, of course, the jungle. Um, is that the sort of imagery that, um, you know, you're sort of building on or did you do something else? 
Um, no, we, we incorporate a lot of that traditional mm. imagery into it. I mean, there are still obviously temples. There are still large, the pyramid temples that they built. You know, there's still cities. There are massive cities with massive engineering projects. Mm. You know, many of them, we followed the traditional um, Aztec um, building methods, which was the building um, man-made land masses called chinampas, where you mm. would drive these poles into the wet ground, put a fresh land over it, and just basically develop it. That's how the city of Tenochtitlan, which is modern day Mexico City was built um, through this method. And we wanted to keep true to that, that many of the large cities are like that. They're built on these man-made uh, islands or built in a man-made lake bed. And we wanted to keep that as well as, you know, the temples and other, you know, more cool, interesting buildings as well. Observatories, um, there was a great deal of interest in the stars and astronomy, so yeah. we thought that made sense. Um, libraries, um, now granted the Mesoamerican, well the Aztecs didn't have an actual alphabet, so many of their writings were recorded as pictographs, similar to hieroglyphs, but not really the same. Um, so we thought that that was another idea, avenue we can explore, so. I, I guess there's all sorts of interesting things that people like to speculate about, like the calendar and, you know, all that kind of stuff that I guess would be fun to play with. Yeah, we actually provide you the calendar in the book. And we explain to you what each day means in the months. And then mm. the, the um, Mesoamerican people had two concurrent calendars. Mm -hmm. They had a sacred calendar and then they had a solar calendar. So the mm. sacred calendar was used to keep track of um, religious festivals and holy days. And the solar calendar was more geared towards, you know, harvest and planting mm -hmm. and also incorporating some religious aspects into it. And when people were talking about, you know, the Mayan doomsday, do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. That coincides with when these two calendars coincide. Yeah. So they coincide every 52 years. They both start on this, you know, at the mm -hmm. beginning of the calendar. And then the cycle is then another 52 cycles of that. So it's roughly mm -hmm. 2,500 plus years. So that's where the whole you know, uh, the doomsday came from was when those, when those two calendars sync up after 52 consecutive times. Fascinating stuff really is, you know, just absolutely amazing. And what about uh, creatures? Um, you know, any new beasties? Uh, we do, we have some, um, they will be in the book right now. We don't have a bestiary plan, but, but one of the stretch goals is a bestiary and having some illustrations for it. Um, I'll, I wrote some of the monsters, but I have to give credit where credit is due. And Tim Hitchcock wrote the majority of them. Mm -hmm. And he did a fantastic job of capturing the, um, the setting as well as adding some of his own, you know, thoughts to it and, and building upon it. And again, like we said, taking natural, what we thought were natural progressions mm -hmm. and, you know, not necessarily staying true because the Mesoamerican people didn't have this vast plethora of, uh, mythological creatures. Mm. Um, so we did kind of have to expand upon it ourselves uh, and some of them were done by other people already so we didn't want mm. to just copy them and just you know redo them so we had to go down a few unexplored avenues and I think um, Tim did a great job of doing that. Great okay and what about the cartography um, who have you who have you engaged? Um, Robert Altbauer did our cartography so mm. he's doing all the maps for the um, the island as well as uh, all the adventures. So um, we have a full color poster map. Um, incredibly, I have learned to, I won't say master Photoshop, but I've learned to <laughs> use Photoshop. So, uh, you know, I added some additions to the map, which I'm hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, he's going to uh, make look really spiffy for us. 
what's um, the sort of time frame for this at the moment? When are you looking for the Kickstarter to hit? The Kickstarter should be hitting any day right. at the moment. So, um, you know, it's been submitted to Kickstarter and for some reason things are kind of lagging behind at the moment. Mm. So we were expecting it out actually last week. Right. And we're still kind of waiting. So Great. once we get the green light, though, this will be coming out, you know, almost immediately. So. Right. Well, hopefully it'll coincide with the release of this. So we can send everyone there and give them the link. Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What excites you personally most about this new kind of pair of books then? You know, the one thing that excites me is that this is really unexplored territory. Mm. This is not something that's been done, you know, multiple times with different interpretations. This is Mm. something that while it's our interpretation of it, there's not a whole um, back catalog of Mesoamerican themed Mm. uh, products out there. So we get to almost be the uh, the trendsetters, I guess, or yeah. the groundbreakers in this in this regard, that we're the ones who are going to put this out there and you know, hopefully get people interested in mm-hmm. this particular culture. And, you know, it's still, it's a place of into itself, but it is connected to the greater Lost Lands world of Akados and Libanos. So if you're really, really dead set on, you know, I love my Akadosian characters and I love this, you can play it here. It's just, mm-hmm you're going to be in the opposite situation. You're going to be the outsider, you know, looking in rather than vice versa, where you're the, you know, where you're in Akados and you're the native popular, you're going to be the one who is the outsider in this particular setting. And you're going to have to um, acclimate yourself to this world. Can you give us a sense of the sort of adventures that you're writing? Uh, The kinds of shenanigans that people will be getting up to, I guess. Uh, I don't want to give too many spoilers away to the adventures. Um, one, the opening one, uh, takes place in a school. So when I talked okay. about compulsory education, that is the setting. And I think we, I'm a literary background. Um, I was an English major. So I tend to draw inspiration from different sources than most other people. So I looked a little bit to literature and add, of course, my own little nuances to it and change it. Um, Rob's second adventure uh, is really cool. He has a really cool idea for it. And it's it's almost like these little, um, it involves these little pets and they're little pet gargoyles and everybody has this attachment to them. Mm -hmm. And if you remember the old, um, old twilight zone, remember twilight zone, right? Or is Mm -hmm. that in the UK? Yeah, we got it over here. Okay. Well, if you remember the old talking Tina episode with, I think it was Telly Savalas, it'll give you an idea where where (laughs) this goes. Okay. And then Tim's uh, third adventure actually takes you into um, another realm. So Mm -hmm. he did a really imaginative version of um, going into this other world to uh, make recompense for a terrible sin that was committed by someone. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and he really immerses you in, in more of the cosmology of this place and then Mm -hmm. this adventure. So we think the three adventures really, not only just give you an adventuring opportunity, but also enhance your experience for the setting and enhance your understanding of this particular um, culture and civilization. Right. I mean, speaking as the teacher, and specifically here in the UK as a religious studies teacher, two of those adventures are really ringing my bell. So that's great. Oh, okay, cool. cool. <laughs> you start talking cosmology, I'm your man. Oh, all uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely fantastic so really really lovely sort of um overview of it also thank you so much for that that's really really good um i was i was kind of thinking about um 
you know, you're kind of doing this with 5e and with Swords and Wizardry and Pathfinder. Um, is there anything that um, you kind of found difficult to kind of bring across three systems? Or is it all, you know, those rules, I, tend, I think they tend to get out of the way, I suppose. But um, Well, Swords and Wizardry is a very, I'll, I'll call it a light rules version. Mm -hmm. So some of the concepts that appear in the class options for 5e mm -hmm. and Pathfinder um, don't port well to Swords and Wizardry. So... You know, you won't be able to play um, a sort and you know Mesoamerican sorcerer. Mm -hmm. um, now you can use the existing rule set to try and tailor make one for yourself, mm -hmm. but it won't be readily available for you to do. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas Pathfinder and Five E, you can do that. Yeah. So, but you know, you can immerse yourself as well with the magical items, the equipment which we provided, mm -hmm. um, the spells that build upon folklore or build upon. Um, certain traditions within their culture. So, you know, the only, the only limitation again is Swords and Wizardry is not, you know, that crunchy, mm. you know, rules engine that 5e and Pathfinder are. And that's probably the only shortcoming, I think, uh, in terms of porting over the rules into that system. Mm. And of course, as you said right at the beginning, you know, if your focus here is upon creating a really immersive setting that, you know, engages people, and then the rules can sort of fall away somewhat anyway. So I guess, you know, that's, that's always being the thing with Frog God, isn't it? You know, go and imagine the hell out of this thing we give you. So <laughs> yeah, like our original saying, uh, original motto was when we were, well, we're still sort of necromancer games was first edition field, third edition rules. And yeah. You know, absolutely. it's still that feel, but it's, you know, whatever rules you want to use. Mm. What are you still dreaming of writing? I mean, if you could do anything, I mean, any kind of stuff, a bit of writing, is there anything there you think, you know, at heart, you'd love to go and have a go at? Um, I'd like to do Call of Cthulhu scenario. Right. Okay. So listen up, Chaosium. Tom wants to write for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I like the modern, though. I'm more of the modern than the 1920s. Sure. I think the 1920s has been, I don't want to say overdone, but I think. Mm touched upon many things in the 1920s and i think you know the advent of increased technology of computers of you know mm. simple idea of having you know alexa or siri you know take over and be you know the voice of this elder being to me <laughs> is really cool and just you know controlling everyone through their their echo dots and whatever yeah. uh, you know what spreading whatever message they want and i i think that intrusion of technology in our lives mm. And the fact that we're so much more interconnected through either social media or through telephone mm. or through um, email or whatever we were then in 1920 mm. um, really makes it even more terrifying. Mm. That, you know, you don't have that place you can kind of retreat to in the 1920s. You can go out to the country and disappear mm. and, you know, live uh, the genteel lifestyle. But in the modern world, it's a lot more difficult with, social media and phones and mm. um, computers and technology constantly intruding on you, you don't have that luxury of simply retreating to your sanctuary because it's always there. And mm. I think that's the scariest part that you can really incorporate into like a horror role-playing game is the mm. fact that there is no escape. There's no getting away from it. Yeah, that's very true. How do you feel about, I mean, just on the thought of that, really, um, how do you feel about our, I mean, our mutual childhood of the 1980s, really, 70s and 80s, becoming culture now, becoming um, part of the sort of cultural memes, you know, we're thinking about, 
um, you know, Tales from the Loop in gaming, you know, kids with bikes. We've had, um, you know, all the stuff with Stranger Things. How do you feel about that? What do you make of that? Um, I, I think it captures it fairly well. Mm. Um, there are, again, we, you know, it was a different environment mm. for many people. Like many people had different experiences. So mm. I think Stranger Things did a good job of capturing that subculture mm. of D&D. Did it capture yeah. the entire experience of the 1980s or 70s? You know, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm American, but I'm a huge fan of your culture, of English culture. I'm a huge Sex Pistols fan. Um, I'm a big <laughs> punk fan. Um, I love the television show, The Young Ones. Mm. Um, uh, I love the, the Flying Circus, and I don't like the movies. And right. I think the, the movies are more popular, I think, in America. Um, yeah. Whereas most people who like the movies in America don't like the show. And they're just like, oh, well, I don't get it. I'm like, no, the show is hysterical because it's, it's that, you know, that sublime, subtle humor rather than the in-your-face kind of, yeah. you know, thing. So. I grew up on that series. And I have to say, you know, I feel similarly. I mean, the films are fine. But, um, you know, honestly, this the series, you know, they, they were just oh, sublime stuff really at the time. So, you know, out on the edge. And, yeah, I'm with you on the punk scene fantastic cool. Cool. <laughs> oh anyway we we went off on one there so never mind um have you got any sort of last things that you wanted to tell us a little bit about the project um about what things are coming up that you you know you feel like we haven't been out of touch on um i i just wanted to let people the audience know out there that um you know we're really proud of this project and mm. we did this project to celebrate these people mm. um, celebrate the mesoamerican culture to celebrate their civilization. Um, it has warts, I'm not going to sugarcoat them. Um, and I think we even say in the book, I'm not gonna sugarcoat some of what was done. Uh, but you know, for what was done wrong, there was a lot that was done right. And it was done in an incredibly vibrant um, and an incredibly expressive fashion. These were very artistic, um, intelligent people who created a world in the middle of a swamp. I mean, that's the bottom line. And they engineered it to their needs. Uh, and they did an incredible job of that. And they built a city that, you know, rivaled anything that existed at the time. And it had a 24-7 market. Most people don't know that. They had a marketplace that was open day and night. It was the, uh, I don't know, like, what's, what's the um, English one? Is it Tesco's is the big supermarket yep. chain? Or? It's the biggest. Right. It's like the Walmart of U.S. You know, <laughs> it's open all the time, no matter what. They had that. They had their own little Walmart or Tesco's that was going constantly. So mm. um, it's just a world that we think you're going to find fascinating. And again, it's got enough connections that if you really feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm really ready to take this plunge, you can go with what you're used to. Um, mm. You'll just be the outsider, but it'll be perfectly fine. And we just hope people support the project and, um, you know, and Frog God Games. And you can follow us on our socials. So follow mm. us on... Um, Facebook is probably our biggest presence. Frog God Games uh, has a Facebook page. Um, our website, froggodgames.com, is predominantly the store. So mm. you're not going to find too much new information. Uh, we also have a big presence on Discord. So Frog God has our own Discord server. So I'm there a lot. Uh, mm. Many of the other writers are there as well, chiming in from time to time. And you can follow me on socials too. I'm on Facebook. Uh, it's my name, Tom Knaus, and I have a little Nandor with a little um, pink doll in front of him. So if you watch what we do in the shadows, I have that. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, we do have some Instagram, but we mostly post art there. And, um, you know, those are the ways to keep in touch with us and follow mm -hmm. us. And, you know, we just hope you enjoy this product. And uh, we're looking forward to giving it to everybody to take a chance to try something totally interesting and new. And I have to say, you know, speaking as someone who has supported many Frog God campaigns over the years, there are very few publishers who, uh, you know, have that slick experience with it all so i know that that will go well for people i know that will be a very positive experience um, i just wanted to say thank you for taking on this this project because i think it it sounds you know it certainly sounds very exciting and as an educator you know i always feel like role-playing games are a really great way to get into learning about um you know a culture as well you kind of get to get into role and, and learn from within as it were to some some degree albeit a fantasy rendition of that so i just wanted to say thank you for taking it on you know um, as ever pushing the boundaries of the hobby which is just fantastic yeah thank you so much great well look thanks very very much for your time today tom it's really really appreciate i really do appreciate you uh, coming on to roleplay rescue and uh, telling us a little bit about it um wish you all the best for the project and all the best with well getting to write for cthulhu one day maybe as well <laughs> yeah thank you Jack. i appreciate it thanks for having me <laughs> there you go i hope you enjoyed this episode of roleplay rescue thanks for listening and i hope you'll hop online and check out the kickstarter for frog god games's new setting i've backed it because i love a good world book and especially the fact that this one's system neutral deep thanks of course to tom canals for doing the interview it was a good chat and i enjoyed having my mind open to mesoamerica thank you and thanks also to frog god games for giving me the chance to meet and chat to tom on that note I'm going to sign off, but don't forget, because we're an Anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. I would say that your contributions make this a better podcast. And if you've enjoyed listening to Tom, please, at the very least, consider sharing the episode on social media to help promote both Frog God Games and Roleplay Rescue. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue, and I look forward to hearing from you in the week ahead. Game on. <laughs>